0: Hear my words and bear witness to my vow Night gathers and now my watch begins It shall not end until my death I shall take no wife Hold no lands Father no children I shall wear no crowns and win no glory I shall live and die at my post I am the sword in the darkness I am the watcher on the walls I am the shield that guards the realm of men.
1: I pledge my life in honor to the Night's Watch. For this night, and all the nights to come.
0: Hello and welcome to Still Watching Game of Thrones, an unofficial podcast about the HBO series Game of Thrones. I'm Betty Ferris, senior writer Joanna Robinson, and this is usually where... Richard Lawson pops in and says hello. But Richard has jaunted off to Can, leaving us all alone with the hot takes. But I have the best companion for these final two episodes of Game of Thrones. It is Katie Rich. Hello, Kitty Rich.
1: Hello. And uh, if you follow Richard on Instagram, you've seen a picture he posted from Can that looked very much like King's Landing. So mm. it's it's like he's thinking of us. I'm sure. Sun, tanning. King's Landing pre-dragon, that is. <laughs>
0: Sun tanning, baking in dragon fire—it's basically the same. Um, <laughs> That's what Europe is, I think. <laughs> yeah. So Katie and I are are well versed with uh, in the realm of podcasting with each other, but we've never done one of these episodes and Still Watching together. So I'm really excited to have Katie no, here. No, this is
1: so excited. Although I I feel like I should say from the start, I'm a, I'm a known Game of Thrones dummy who has never read the books <laughs> and sometimes forgets key plot points from the show. So I'll try not to embarrass myself that's absolutely not true katie
0: like basically co-writes all of my content on sunday nights but, <laughs> but, um, but i
1: also ask you things like wait who is that <laughs> like all the time <laughs> wait Littlefinger died is my
0: favorite that's a that's a classic katie rich anyway we are here to talk about season eight episode five the bells which is written by db weiss and david benioff and directed by miguel sapochnik um this is the penultimate episode of game of thrones we're in the end game now. This is a very divisive. If you thought last week was a divisive episode, this is an even more divisive episode. Um, So you've probably heard a lot of hot takes, like Flying Fast and Furious. Katie and I are going to do a classic, still watching, uh giving out of awards before we dive into those hot takes. So we are going to run down a few of the things that we like to sort of hand out and say about the episode, starting with our, like, hardcore MVP of the episode katie rich who is your mvp of this episode the bells
1: i mean i think it's a it's a controversial pick but like if there's someone who you're gonna be the most afraid of it's it's drogon like drogon did a lot of things in this episode and he is the person who i would most not like to run into in an alley so i think he's gotta be the winner is that your traditional definition of MVP? Like, I don't know. I honestly was thinking of it as VIP. And <laughs> so, oh. you reminded me that it was MVP. um, but I don't know. Like, he was the biggest mover and shaker. Yeah. I mean, I guess Daenerys is because she's the one controlling the fire, but like, I don't know. I like, I like giving it a shot. We got one dragon left, but he gets, a- he gets a job done.
0: He, he got many jobs done <laughs> um, this week. Um, to go hand in hand of that, I'm going to give the MVP award to, uh, Amelia Clark. Who say what you will about what is going on in Daenerys, with Daenerys inside her mind. In, you want to call it a sudden heel turn. You want to call it a paid off long, you know, predicted, uh, character evolution, whatever you want to call it. Amelia Clark had to do a lot of work in realms that she hasn't worked in before. And I'm thinking like specifically of that shot where, you know, the bells, the titular bells are going. And it's a silent shot. She's all alone. And I was watching the making of the episode last night and she's not just all alone without a line of dialogue. She's all alone without a line of dialogue on the back of a hydraulic rig surrounded by green screen. Yeah. She gives this just really incredible performance where I'm like watching it and I rewatched that scene because I was trying to figure out why Daenerys snapped there. But like, I was like, I was like, I might not understand why she's snapping here, but I fully feel this snap it doesn't feel like unbelievable because the emotional work is there does that make sense
1: yeah and i was comparing it to the shot of her at the uh, with miss andy last week where you kind of watch this fury develop on her face and they really emphasized that in the previously on that aired before the episode and you see her face just turned to stone and like yeah. that's an impressive amelia clark performance too and when the snap comes even though as you're saying her emotions feel really complicated it's so different it's a completely different reading that she's giving us which i think says a lot about the work that amelia clark's doing And we'll get into, uh, you know,
0: I I was basically sort of gobbling up every interview I could find to try to parse the moment. And I think I've, I've figured out some things since last we spoke, Katie Rich. Uh, But you know, we'll, we'll see if that uh, lands with audiences. Um, All right, so let us then go to our sneaky MVP our stealth MVP. Of the episode, this is someone a little under the radar that we like to give a shout out to. Katie, who do you have on your list here?
1: Uh, I don't, I should have looked up the actress's name, but I don't even know how, but the woman who was short hair, who was kind of a red shirt running around in King's Landing, who you see with her daughter, like trying to get into the right keep and they can't make it. Uh, and then later Aria tries to protect them. I just thought she was doing a lot with this performance with, I don't even know if she had any lines. And I was kind of, you know, waiting like, oh, she's a goner. Um, but I thought she did interesting things with that. And then, you know, the impact that she and her daughter had on Arya was pretty powerful as well.
0: Yeah, the, it reminded me a lot of, um, you know, uh, Miguel Sopaschnik, who directed this episode, also directed Hard Home, which is one of my favorite episodes of Game of Thrones. And in that episode, there's this character named Carcy, who is, you know, just this wildling woman with a couple kids. And you meet her basically in the middle of the episode. Right, and she, and well, she, right, right dies before the episode's over, and you're so invested in her character. Um, and so, like, to a slightly lesser degree, but a similar, a similar effect, I think that that's, like, the role she's serving here, right? Is like, this is a woman and her children trying to get to safety. That is just inherently, uh, sympathetic. And as you, as you say in the notes here, like, it gives, it gives stakes. It gives grounded stakes to this, um, episode to this performance
1: yeah and it's not just someone who you know is going to be an innocent who gets roasted like it doesn't feel as uh sadistic as sometimes these things can feel
0: yeah absolutely and i I think that um i think one of the ways in which these last couple seasons have uh faltered a little is not showing us the on the ground of what's going on in king's London. there's so much discussion of the realm and they forgot to do some of the things that they have done in seasons past, which is just like, show us the man on the street in King's Landing.
1: Mm-hmm. You forget how many freaking people live in Westeros.
0: Yeah. And so then this episode just like doubles down to make up for lost time and, and in the, you know, in the making of... Documentary basically, I think it was Dan Weiss said, you know, we wanted to you you like don't see Daenerys for the back 30 of the episode, basically. Mm-hmm. And he's like, we wanted to stay on the ground and focus on these people and what it would be like to have like hellfire rain on you from above.
1: And well, we can debate you know, whether or not showing Daenerys was a good idea, but I can't like, what we saw from the ground. <laughs> I
0: agree. But I but I kind of wish um, You know, it all feels like there's not enough time for anything anymore, but I kind of wish we could have gotten more of that going through. Like, I think they did a similar thing in the Battle of Winterfell where they, like, introduced this little soup girl. And you're like, oh, soup girl, I care if you make it out of the Battle of Winterfell. But it still just feels like these sort of one-off things, whereas I think before they did a slightly better job of... The, the lower class people, the people who are really affected by the power players in, uh, Westeros, you know, like characters yeah. like Roz and the brothel or so, you know, like that there are just like people around who are, who are not kings and queens who still matter. Um, yeah. yeah. All right. Uh, okay. Uh, best line reading. This is where I usually make Richard do an impression, but I'm not
1: going to make you do that, Katie, unless you Oh, want no. To. Well, I mean, yes, please. I'm not, I'm not the theater nerd <laughs> that you guys are. Um.
0: So what? What is your what is your best? Wait, did you line? do your stealth VIP? Oh, oh, I forgot to thank you. Um, actually, my stealth VIP uh was originally going to be director Miguel Sapochnik, but I don't know that that's stealth enough. And the stealth VIP, I think for this episode is is Deb Riley, who is the production designer, mm-hmm. because they basically had to build Dubrovnik for this, right? Like they usually shot um all the King's Landing stuff in Croatia. And there's a couple reasons why they weren't there this year. One is like, you know, privacy, right? You can't, Mm -hmm. you can't protect yourself from drones. But the other is the fact that they were, whatever sets they had for King's Landing, they were going to have to be able to blow up. Yeah. And so they had to meticulously recreate the back alley streets of Dubrovnik and watching, um, like I wasn't super impressed with the gates of King's Landing on that like weird wasteland that has never been a part of the King's Landing like architecture infrastructure like that. Yeah, didn't that impress just felt me. like
1: weird space.
0: Yeah, you know, useful blank space to stage an army. Right, but the crush on the streets, all the crowd stuff on the streets, to go with you know what you were saying, I think that did look convincing. And um, you know, yeah. Uh,
1: and I went to New- I went to Dubrovnik a couple years ago. I think right around the time they stopped filming there, and it really did feel like the city like it, the geography felt right like obviously king's landing has been like cgi CGI augmented from the beginning but like, it's right. like there were shots where i was like oh that looks like dubrovnik and it, it felt real even though they recreated the whole thing yeah
0: so you know the and and they were talking about how they not only had to like build all these buildings which they did um but also work within the building of the building they then also had to figure out how to make it look beautiful when destroyed. You know, it's not, yeah. so it's not just a matter of like, let's build a set and then let's blow it up. You have to, in baked into the construction of the set in the first place, you have to figure out, okay, when we blow it out, this is what the rubble is going to look like, you know. And, and um Deb was talking about how, uh, you know, and it's funny because like Deb, uh, we interviewed Deb for this podcast a couple weeks ago. And she was great. And it was fascinating because I know nothing about production design. And um I asked her, I was like, I heard that there's like a, you know, a new location we've never seen before. And she was like, she couldn't say what it was. She was like, it's my hope that you won't even notice. And what she was talking about was this like fake Dubrovnik that they built basically. Ah. Um, You know, she's like, if we've done our job well, you won't even notice that there is a new set on season eight. So, um, yeah, I, I want I
1: had a can I give a, do a bonus still? <laughs> yeah, TV. of course. Yeah. Uh, well, I was just thinking about Paula Fairfield because, uh, you know, she was the guest last week and mm-hmm. the creaking sounds as the Red Keep is falling apart as you're kind of watching Cersei run away. It uh, yeah. a it reminded me of Titanic, my beloved Titanic and like the sound of the building <laughs> collapsing. And I just thought it was so effective and spooky. And the score in this episode was great. But I really love just that that audible collapsing that was happening in this episode.
0: Yeah, also, I mean, so Paula does, like, most of Dragon stuff, so I don't think she's- But her, anything. her team, whoever- No, no, something. no! I was, I didn't mean to be like, well, actually you, but I wanted to add another thing to that, which was, um the Jamie Lannister wheezing, and I don't know if that was just all Nikolai Costa Waldo, like, in a sound booth somewhere making wheezing noises, but I feel like I could, I could hear his lungs leaking, um, for (laughs) for the end of the episode. So, um, there you go. Um, all right. Uh, let hit me with your, best line or most memorable line reading from the episode. okay
1: so m- mine was uh basically just because this is what i would be saying in the situation which was cersei saying to jamie i don't like this i don't like this because <laughs> and were i in the situation i don't think i would have caused this destruction but which yeah. she definitely did but her kind of you know development into just a scared person um, i thought it was great acting from her and i it, she really sold that fear yeah no i mean it was uh it's interesting
0: because i Watching them film that, you know, and some of the behind the scenes stuff, it seems like some of it a little bit at least is improvised. It's just Lena Headey and Nicolai Custerwaldo being like, yeah, we know how to play these characters. Don't worry. Yeah. Get out of our way. <laughs> <laughs> we can do this. Um, I was, I was uh, surprisingly, a lot of people have problems with, with this, uh, the storyline, the way it concluded. And we can talk about that. But um, I was just surprisingly excited to see the two of them back together because, yeah. um I just they they work so well together Um, yeah
1: and she just sells that moment of she's been keeping up this brave front like you know to a preposterous degree and then she sees him and totally falls apart
0: yeah I completely agree
1: Um, okay so I'm going
0: to quote our dearly departed friend uh, Lord Varys who you know was has always been good at, at drawing out some delicious lines and he goes I hope I deserve this truly I do I hope I'm wrong Goodbye, old friend. Yeah, that's um, good. That's good. Was good. <laughs> I mean, Varys, he goes out basically with an I told you so in advance. And um, <laughs> <laughs> it's pretty solid. So, you know, R.I.P. Lord Varys, one of the most uh, verbal people in the in the Seven Kingdoms. We will miss you and your line (laughs) meetings.
1: What are all of his little spies going to do now?
0: Oh, his little birds. He was so nice. Like, that was such an interesting shot with that little bird, Martha, I guess her name was, where he was like, he held out his hand to her. Mm -hmm. Camera just like focuses on his hand as he's just sort of like, you know, like, what did I tell you? Like, you know, it's just like, I don't know. It It was a good goodbye for that character. Conlet Hill gave a... I love, you know I love a salty exit interview, right? <laughs> um, <laughs> and Conleth Hill, who plays Varys, gave a fairly salty one to Entertainment Weekly uh where he was talking about not this episode, because I think he quite liked maybe like his last two episodes on the show. But I think for a couple seasons, he felt fairly sidelined out of what was going on. And I think that's true of like a lot of the supporting characters as you drill down on like John and Daenerys scenes or whatever sure. it is, you know, like what is Lord Varys have to do, but a line here or there, or when you, I mean, basically essentially when you take him out of King's Landing, ever since he got taken out of King's Landing in season four, it's just sort of like, what is there for Varys to do? Um, and he, you know, he did his, his various machinations. Um, but, uh, now the time for, like, that's the last political, I guess, unless you count Tyrion or Sansa, that's yeah. the last real political maneuver or, uh, Littlefinger and Varys are dead now. So
1: yeah, okay. I guess Sansa is, uh, gonna keep
0: the, keep it alive. Chaos, chaos time in the realm. All right. Best dressed of the episode, uh, Katie hit me with that good take. I mean, on this was track.
1: hard. Like, I really didn't feel like I was paying attention to what anybody was wearing. Like, Cersei's got her, like, robes. but was not her best look. So, but I do think Daenerys' battle armor that's, like, all black and really hardcore, I feel like that's new. And, again, like, in that shot of Amelia Clark, like, making her decision, uh, it, it stood out to me what she was wearing there. Yeah, something
0: that uh, uh, Michelle Clapton has said, who's the costume designer on the show, is that she uses color to, um, you know, sort of betray... Moods, And so if you watch where Daenerys is wearing white and where she's wearing red and where she's wearing black in this season, especially, um, you know, dictates sort of whether she's being good Daenerys or fire and blood Daenerys. Mm-hmm. And it's not, it's not just like the white is for the winter up north because she had like a, like a sort of red version and, and gray versions of those coats up north too. So, um, I don't know. It's kind of fascinating. And she also, um, Michelle Clapton's also said that she, as soon as Daenerys arrived in Westeros, so season uh, seven, she started dressing her a bit more like her brother Viserys from season one. So if you look, you'll see some like similarities to Viserys wore a lot of black and red. And um, I think that's, it's not the only parallel to Viserys in this episode, but it's
1: an intriguing one. So she saw the heel turn coming ages ago.
0: Oh, I'm sure they told Michelle, they're like Michelle.
1: <laughs> <laughs> break out the
0: darkness. <laughs> break out the evil clothes. Here we go. <laughs> um <laughs> All right, my best dressed is going to go to uh a look that you are the one who pointed out to me, Katie, which is um the Hound with the hood up as he's stalking through Oh uh, yeah. King's Landing with Arya. That's a that's a very good look that we've never seen before in the Hound. So Yeah,
1: him and Jamie both stalking around in hoods. Yeah, but then Jamie like <laughs> I guess Jamie was
0: trying to get people's attention, but there's that shot where he's just like sticking his gold hand out of the crowd. Oh, definitely. He's trying to be like, "I'm
1: Jamie Lannister." I'm Jamie. Yeah,
0: exactly. But at first, I was like, "Bud, what? This looks so awkward." Then I was like, "Oh, stupidest Lannister."
1: (laughs) Yeah, exactly. (laughs)
0: Um, All right, and the last thing we do—this is a tough one for this episode—but usually we we ship. Two people or people and an inanimate object or whatever it might be. Uh, so Katie, what, what, what romance have you found to cling to in this I,
1: episode? I just want Aria and that horse to get out of Dodge and keep going. And I, you suggested that she wouldn't go back to Winterfell. That actually hadn't occurred to me until I read your post and wh- wherever Aria winds up, I hope that horse takes her far, far away from all of this vengeance. Yeah.
0: I think she's just done with death and with violence. A lot of people have wondered if she was, you know, because there's that whole like, what does the white horse mean? Pale horse, pale rider from the Bible. Death. I am become death. You know, like sort of thing for Arya. But I think it's complete opposite. And everything I've seen in interviews has indicated that Arya's only mission and only thought at that point is to get the sh- like hell out of town. Mm-hmm. She's trying to leave. She's not trying to like maneuver herself so she can kill Daenerys. I don't think. I don't think that's the lesson of this episode. The lessons episode is the hound saying. What if you don't have death on your mind? And then you won't become like me. And, you know, so. Um, all right. So my ship, (laughs) which has angered a lot of people, is the Jamie and Cersei Toxic Love Forever. It's not like it's not like I'm really rooting for them. I'm just like it makes sense to me and I think it hits emotionally like very well in this episode. Um, I might argue actually that what gets in the way of this is actually some of the other stuff. Like why did Jamie Lannister go North at all? Uh, You know, I, I like that story. I like the idea of someone trying to become a better man and then like failing and reverting to old ways. But there's also like, some weird conflicting behind-the-scenes interviews where they talk about like, oh, Jamie Lannister finally knows who he is and he's like, you know, he's not happy about it, but he's okay with it. And I'm like, I don't know that that's my take of Jamie. I feel like he's two people. I think he's both like Jamie and Winterfell and Jamie and King's Landing. And it's just like sort of one feels more comfortable. One's well-worn to him and the other- you know.
1: Yeah, isn't it that like he saw a greater threat coming, so he had so he left Cersei, but then the minute he realized she was in danger, he had to go back to her. Like he he also thought he was becoming Winterfell, Jamie and then realized that he couldn't. yeah, exactly. So think, you know, yeah, I mean, oh, yeah, I guess we can talk about Jamie more now that the story his story is completed. I know he's your eternal problematic fave, but <laughs> it feels like all of the beats of this make sense. We just needed more time for it. Like it just had to happen. The Jamie and Brand thing had to happen in the span of an episode and then he had to leave her and it felt rushed, but it does feel real. Yeah, I agree with
0: that. Let us talk more in depth about the episode uh, right after this break from our sponsors. I'm
1: Claire Fallon.
0: All right. So we, as promised, we are going to talk about some of these threads. I mean, overall, I think, Katie, you and I were a little uh, more positive on this episode than the general consensus seems to be. Um, I have yeah. I have a like huge wells of sympathy for people who are really frustrated with the Daenerys, what they see as like an out of nowhere Daenerys turn I agree that I think the show did not do a great job of laying track here and I wrote a piece uh, that went up on VF last night about sort of how the show has prized shock uh, over over sort of like well-earned surprise I know there's just a difference between what George R. R. Martin does to lay a surprise twist in the narrative and what uh the show writers have done the last few seasons they feel like out of nowhere brutal shock feels like more up their alley than say like the and Martell thing which just feels like inevitable when you're watching it you know yeah um but that being said like there's a number of other things that worked really really well for me in this episode let's start with my problematic fave Jamie Lannister mm. and Cersei Lannister people i Maybe. think people i think are more upset because they really wanted Cersei to have a, like, brutal, awful death. And that has always actually sat like, not very comfortably with me. Mm-hmm. Um, we, we were talking about it. We, you know, some TV TV critic folks were talking about it on Twitter over the weekend. It was sort of like, rolling it. Like, yes, Cersei is a bad person. Yes, it's fine that she died. This, she made her bed. That's absolutely right. I wasn't, like, necessarily rooting for her to, like, rule the Seven Kingdoms. I'm not excusing any of the horrible things she's done. That being said um someone pointed out that uh, we didn't roll into the breaking bad finale being like can't wait for walter white to get like brutally decimated by some you know what i mean like Mm -hmm. walter Walter, even though
1: his right his death did feel inevitable absolutely inevitable and right yeah uh, you
0: know but it wasn't like you know i hope someone tortures him you know like something like that and that that was the whole cersei thing is like people felt it felt like people were just out for blood in a way that both felt a little gendered, but also just like I don't know, I, I have I have conflicted feelings about even fictional villains being brutalized um on screen. Did you have any like Cersei death wishes, or how were you feeling rolling into Valley?
1: Um, I felt like this was the right way. I wanted one more scene for Lena Headey. Like, I think we've talked about how we felt like this should be her Emmy year. And I wonder if the way that this episode played out kind of deprived her of the one big thing, like, you know, her smirk when executing Miss Sandy last week was pretty powerful, but it kind of felt like it was leading up to some last big thing for her. But this episode just didn't quite have time for it. Um, But I'm with you that like, she's such a complicated character that I didn't want to see her, like have her head put on a pike and, ideally these new rulers are the people who wouldn't do that. Although Daenerys has kind of proven that she's willing to be pretty brutal. Um, It's just more interesting if she's a more complicated character. And also she's been a loser for like so long, like her position. And you, you would remember this better than me. Like her position has just been so obviously weak since the minute Daenerys got to Westeros that like, it wouldn't like drawing out her death wouldn't accomplish anything.
0: Yeah. I mean, it's just not the kind of violence that I think is rewarding to watch. I mean, maybe like your mileage may vary, maybe violence isn't rewarding to watch in any uh, way, shape or form. But I think that like, once again, to bring it back to Oberyn Martell or even the red wedding, like that's a kind of brutality that makes sense to me, not just because they're like heroes being brutalized, but it's just sort of like it, it, you're just soaking in the tragedy of it. And I think this gives us like tragedy, plenty of tragedy to soak in in this episode with Cersei and Jamie. Um, or even, like,
1: like a, a brutal death that, like, isn't tragic, but, like, is satisfying. It's Qyburn. Like, Kyber getting his head bashed in was, like, surprising and weird, but, like, fine. Yeah. Yeah,
0: he just got meloned, and it was fine. Or like whatever happened to the mountain, that's fine. I don't know. It's like they've worked really hard to make Cersei a complicated villain. In like, you know, we have the that whole walk of shame sequence mm-hmm. that puts us directly inside of her head. Or a lot of, you know, they 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 made her much more sympathetic than she is in the books. There's a lot of stuff in the show about, um, you know, the way she was raised, the way her father treated all of his children. You know, the way they were all warped by their upbringing. Like that's interesting and compelling and human stuff and so i i i liked this very human ending for her it wasn't like a happy ending but it was like one she deserved and something else that i wrote about on vf was this the fact that it was this twist on this old book prophecy the valencar prophecy i love a misinterpreted prophecy there's nothing i love more <laughs> <laughs> in literature and you've seen this coming for a
1: long time um
0: well i would say it's not just me i mean like certainly what what book readers the prophecy as it lays out in the book is that Cersei would be choked to death by the little brother uh is is the is the translation of the word Valonqar. and so Cersei interprets that as Tyrion and then book readers thinking they're smarter than you know they're like aha we won't be fooled it's Jamie who's like technically younger than her by a few seconds you know so they were like okay Jamie's going to kill her he's definitely going to kill her and then i like not just me but like some people are like okay but like is Jamie choking Cersei really something we want to see? So I was, actually, I think born by my like weird favoritism of Jamie was rooting for something else. And so this idea that like, he wraps his hands around her neck, not to choke her, but to like comfort and soothe her. And that they choke and die, but not because he has like killed her um is, is what I wanted. That's exactly what I wanted. And people are mad and I'm satisfied. So, although is the Valencar
1: theory, is it, is that prophecy in the show at all?
0: No, um, it's not. And so I don't know, um, they cut it, like, they had a prophecy scene, uh, in season five with some other things for
1: Cersei and they cut the Valonqar thing. So I was like, they might not do it all, at all. Interesting. You know? And so, so the, I mean, this death could just be, I mean, I guess it doesn't matter because, like, the prophecy is known to book readers, but, like, it could just be a death for Cersei and Jamie and have nothing to do with the prophecy. It could. I think
0: the way they shot it, like the prophecy says, once you've drowned in your tears and like Lena Kitty is doing all this like enormous amount of crying. Yes. And then, you know, the way that Nicolai Coaster Waldo as Jamie puts his hands on her neck is not entirely natural. It's pretty natural, but not entirely natural. And I, I do think it's supposed to be a nod to that. It's sure. like, let's take this thing and twist it. But if you don't know about the prophecy, you're just sort of like,
1: okay, that's how Jamie and Cersei died. Totally. You know? Yeah. Like me yeah. not knowing and not having read the books, like you could watch that and be like, yeah, they just wanted to die together. Because yeah. didn't he say at some point he wanted to die in the arms of the woman he loves?
0: Yes. That's something he said in season five. So, you know, you and know. then and then Lady Olenna last season was like, you and Cersei will sort of like be the death of each other. And in the book, Cersei is always like, we, we came into the world together, we'll go out of the world together. So, you know, it's like, it feels... Fairly inevitable. Um, weren't you
1: kind of rooting for more of an, like, them taking more action when it came to their deaths, though? Like, not necessarily trying to kill each other, but like, not just being like crushed by rubble. It kind of felt like they would like have a more active role in this. Oh, Cersei so doesn't really do anything in this episode other than like watch her city get destroyed. Yeah. Well, actually, okay. Well, okay. There's
0: definitely room for me to have criticism of this. My criticism of this is the Cersei pregnancy plot, which I still don't understand why this is a thing and and my fear is that it only exists to further humanize Cersei which is not something that I felt like I needed for her but mm-hmm. this idea that like a pregnant woman is more sympathetic than a not pregnant woman this idea that like because she's pregnant Tyrion believes she might be deceiving him um and then at the end she's like I want to live I want our baby to live like to make her like more somewhat vulnerable seeming I don't like any of that it- there were some rumors at the end of last season that and it was actually in a, in a version of the script that she was going to miscarry at the end of last season. Hmm. And so when she did not do that, um, as it was written in one of the scripts, then I was like, okay, so what's the reason for keeping the baby? And I still cannot give you a good answer. To that i
1: mean it, i guess the idea is that like like you were saying like Tyrion believed her more because he keeps saying over and over again i think he said in this episode like she has a re- she has something to live for now yeah. and like the the standard line being that everything terrible cersei has done has been for her children so it's not just her like if you know if she had no kids in the future like she might have a death wish and just be fine with king's landing burning to the ground but with this idea that she can hold on to her rule and have a have a you know true-born king yeah. son um like that might just motivate her more than just to take everyone down with her.
0: And because of all of that, I just like, I agree with that, but it, it feel, it felt messy to me for her to be like, I want our, our child to live. Like it it felt, it felt like there's a lot of sticky gendered stuff in this. And and that felt like part of it. Um, and then the other thing I mean, in my, in my fan fiction version of this ending, here's what's happened. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Jamie gets mortally wounded and uh, what she did, and he encounters her as the city's crumbling. And she could leave; she could still leave, mm-hmm. and she stays with him, and they die ah. together. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And so, it's in an that choice, way, yeah, and then that way, he causes her death but does not kill her. And that mm-hmm. so that was sort of what I was hoping it would go towards, and instead, it was just sort of like we're trapped. Oh well, here we go. Yeah. Which I still think was beautifully acted, so I'm not mad about it.
1: Yeah. Yeah, and right. like, you know, he's telling her to look at him and like make the choice to like be together as they die, as opposed to just like scrambling till the end.
0: But I won't disagree with you that Lena Katie deserved um, like much more to do. I think, I think uh, the more this season shakes out, the more I understand that they really thought of these last 13 episodes as like one long season. Mm-hmm. You see so many things set up in season seven that are paid off directly in season eight, that I feel like they had to have written a lot of this stuff altogether. Mm-hmm. And so in that regard, Guard, you know Cersei has much more to do in the front half of this final thirteen episode season. If you want to think of it that way, yeah. I don't know. Um, all right, uh, let us talk about another thing that I think you and I liked, which is the Arya stuff. Um, Katie, what did you what did you like about Arya's? But because Aria is another weird one, where like she comes to King's Landing. She doesn't really do anything, though she does make an active choice, and then she
1: leaves. That's Arya's journey through King's Landing. So what what did you like about it? The active choice is what the clear difference is. Like, first of all, like, this payoff to this Arya and the Hound relationship that, like, I really liked how just openly affectionate it became in this episode, at least, you know, maybe in the episode before where, like they've had such a complicated thing. Like they don't necessarily like each other, but they recognize the value of their shared history. And then as they get in there, like the Hound making a choice and saying he's done for, like, I think we all knew that the Hound was probably not going to survive to see whatever happens at the end of the series. Um, But knowing that Arya could be different and like seeing that she's kind of modeled herself off of him in some ways, but she has the ability not to, and that she made the choice not to. And I think Like, with everyone, like, we could have seen a little bit more of this developing, and, like, her going from, like, murder robot to not murder robot is kind of a big transition from her. But then, you know, she uses her skills and her heroism to try to save people in the streets of King's Landing, which does feel extremely... Uh, in character for her. And the way that it cross-cuts the hound fighting the mountain with Arya kind of getting slammed into the streets was just beautiful. Like, there's such elegant yes. battle filmmaking, which, and I think the Battle of Winterfell had some strengths to it, but, like, man, was I glad this was in daylight. Like, it just made such a huge difference of how um, powerful this stuff could be. Um, and then, you just seeing Arya kind of tattered at the end of it and seeing an escape and taking it, um, it, it feels like the right arc for her. And it, and it feels like not like she's turning into a different person, but it is payoff to all these seasons of watching her seek vengeance and then learning that that isn't actually going to solve anything.
0: Yeah, it's funny because like our um, our um boss, Mike Hogan, in his recap, a lot of which I agreed with, he was like, this felt like a sort of destruction of Arya's character arc. And I'm like, I feel like it's the right conclusion. Like, did we want her on a murder path for the rest of her life? Is that what we wanted her arc to be? Like the arc was towards lack of humanity and like uh, being at Winterfell chipped away at that a little bit for her, like reinserted some humanity into her life. But this was like a huge, like in like flooding in of humanity. And like mm-hmm. it, it did, it did wonders for Maisie Williams who like I loved up through season four. And then basically ever since Arya like left Westeros, went to Bravos and and trained to be a murder robot, as you put it, there was this sort of flat affect that came with that performance that was like necessary for Arya to present uh, he, like stripped out humanity but it it limited i think what Maisie williams could do and i think in this episode we saw some of the best stuff from her that we've seen in a long time
1: yeah like the way she looks at the hound when he's telling her like don't be like me is so vulnerable yeah. um and, and, and like you're saying like something we haven't seen from aria in a long time
0: and like sometimes you can see the strings of the plot like when you think about how quickly pieces were shuffled around on the board in this episode it's like okay everyone up to Winterfell okay some people back down to King's Landing you know what I mean and so like what purpose do they serve so Jamie is down there to be with Cersei at the end okay that that makes sense and the hound is down there so that they can do this like clue and then Arya is down there it feels like to me and they've said sort of similar things in behind the scenes interviews that like to give us a perspective on the street that we were enormously sympathetic to. Yeah. Um, you know, so Arya is our man on the streets in in um, King's Landing, and so and and you talk about the thing that worked so well for me because I actually the the clash between the Hound and the Mountain, which is a long gestating fan theory called Cleganebowl, uh, which which the writers are aware of because they called it Bowl, which is a fan theory name they called it that in the behind-the-scenes interviews so like i just want to say when when weiss and benioff say they don't listen to fans they do
1: um <laughs> I mean, but I mean, <laughs> that's what i'm aware of
0: having not read anything it's true it's true but anyway so they were like everyone wanted this we wanted this we wanted this click gamble. I didn't care at all about game Bowl, and in fact, Katie read a pre-write for me where I was just sort of like, you know, because it seemed like this is where it was going, and I was like, I don't like this for the Hound. Then I watched it, and the way it cut between the Hound and Arya I loved, which was yeah. Director Miguel Sapochnik's choice. The original idea was to have like a 12-minute, I think, one on Arya as she went through the city, and he decided to chop it up and intercut it with the Hound fight, which is super tremendously effective yeah and all of a sudden it links these two stories in an even more concrete and visceral way in and so then i was like katie i'm changing my take (laughs) 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 i'm into clickable now (laughs) so
1: so um, having like having followed the aria and hound relationship like do you feel like this is the right way for it to end like does all this make sense with what we've seen from them it all still feels
0: hasty but um you know it's the best possible way in which uh clickable could have meant anything I think. Mm -hmm. And I, I think in an ideal world with, with all this, uh, you know, as many episodes as we could have, Arya and the Hound would have been back on the road together. Like, I don't know, a couple episodes before they got to King's Landing. So it wasn't just like, Oh, Hey, Oh, Hey, we killed the army of the dead. Let's go to King's Landing. Okay. I've learned something from you. Bye. Do you know, it just feels so fast. Um, yeah, that's true for everything. Yes. I did like the reflection of, um, Arya says, you know, she calls him Sandor. She doesn't call him the Hound. Yeah. And she says, thank you, which is very similar to Bran saying, like, Theon, you're a good man. Thank you. Like,
1: yeah. 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 Uh, can we also shout out uh, when the Clement cl- Game Ball starts? Uh, Cersei just hustling down the stairs yeah. to get past them. <laughs> Which, again, (laughs) this is what I would do in this situation. Cersei is very relatable.
0: If that had been a line reading, it would have been my line. But instead, it's like, yeah, I should have just been like the rustling of Cersei's footsteps down the stairs. (laughs)
1: Like, Like, this has nothing to do with me. I'm
0: out of here. But there are things about, and, and, like, I'm curious to know if you have any thoughts on this, but there are things about this quote-unquote game Bowl fight that feel like misplaced priorities for me. Because, like, I don't mind that it happened, and I love the connection that they made to Arya. But, you know, they were talking a lot in the behind-the-scenes episodes how they wanted to make it look Epic is a word they use 900 times. Epic and post-apocalyptic. So they have this, like, blown out staircase and a dragon flying overhead and you see all of the prosthetics on, on, uh, the actor who plays the mountain and all this sort of stuff. And that, to, that, that and, like, and the dive off the, you know, off the uh-huh. top into the fire. All of that, to me, feels completely unnecessary. Like, have them fight, sure. Does it need to be on like this massive staircase set that they've built and with all the CGI laid in and like all like I guess the actor who played the mountain was in like seven hours of prosthetics in order to like get ready. I was like I don't I didn't need to see him with his clothes or his helmet off like oh, I didn't. I kind
1: of like that you know? I liked that it like yeah. revealed because he looked more human than I was expecting. I mm. kind of thought he would look more like a monster. Yeah. Um. So I like the prosthetics of that and I think my argument like I I do think the the bigness of it. Someone was tweeting that it looked like the um big lava fight at the end of Star Wars, the third uh, Star Wars. Yeah. Sequel. Uh-huh. Um, but it is a nice contrast to Aria like the, the fact that they are up, up above the ground there's all these things going on and Aria is like down in the dirt with people so it makes that cross-cutting more effective I think yeah okay um, but I also agree that like you know it might be excess for excess's sake I just and think that, spend that money on ghosts yeah. Or like another episode of talking. Sure. Like, I just think, I, I think
0: that there's so much that's so good in this episode. Um, the, the craftspeople are at the top of their game. Miguel Sapochnik, the director, top of his game. So good in this. But then there's just like a lot of it that feels unnecessarily big when Game of Thrones is also so rewarding when it's small. And just as you said, like the small focus in on that one woman and her and her child trying to get through King's Landing is is extremely valuable or focus in small on like Kit Harington's face, which I thought he did a good job registering this like, oh, no, of mm-hmm. it all.
1: Or um, even like even in when they have some big shots, like there's this one of Tyrion kind of walking through the big hole that's been blasted in the walls um, and it's a big shot, but there's a character to focus on in it. Um, I feel like they did a good job with that among the spectacle a lot.
0: Okay, so one last thing before we just hit the Daenerys thing kind of hard, which is the um something that I thought was tremendously effective that they talked about a lot trying to create is this idea of like our good guys becoming the bad guys. There's this yeah. great um uh, Mitchell and Webb sketch. I don't know if you've seen it, where David Mitchell uh either they're they're dressed as like sort of sort of Nazis, not quite Nazis or whatever, but like they have this conversation where they're like, Are we the baddies? <laughs> they're like they're, they're little like their skulls on our on our costume. Are we are we the bad guys? <laughs> um And that was just sort of like the whole. That's what uh, John, conversation. Oh, it was like it's like John Snow. He's like, wait, yeah. wait a minute. Um, and and Miguel Ceballos talked about how he shot the episode, um, as a reflection of Battle of the Bastards. Only this time, John Snow was on like the other side of some of the same shots that he recreated. Oh, you that's know what cool. I mean? I'd yeah, like, I'd like really to see cool. some side
1: by sides of that. Sorry, oh, I assign, did I just assign you? Some- I can do that for you. (laughs) But yeah, so I think that
0: that's kind of cool that they, you know, they, they reverse that perspective. I think that's interesting and compelling.
1: And um, I think for all the, like, weird character stuff that's happened, like, Jon Snow, maybe because he's a little bit of a dummy, he's a really consistent character. Like, you see him in this battle situation, he is responding exactly the way that you think he would, where he's trying not to fight, he's trying to help as he can, he's willing to defend himself, but is also kind of, like, you know, surprised by how this has turned out, which I, I don't blame him. Like, I think I would be surprised, too. Um So it's nice to kind of watch Jon Snow be who we know him to be. Yeah, I think that... um uh,
0: the idea of Grey Worm, the Unsullied and the Dothraki going like ham on the city. Yeah. Um, was potentially very problematic. So they decided to have like the white northerners do it too. And in fact, like specifically have Jon Snow stop a white northern soldier from. Yeah,
1: that part was doing a much. rape yeah
0: um which is exactly what you want to do when the fire is raining down from the sky i guess and that it all felt a little much i mean i like I, on the one hand i'm like well i'm glad they did that so it wasn't just like the brown soldiers like sure. using it and but at the same time i was just like yeah how do you come back from this and and where do you go from here which brings yeah. us to daenerys wait, wait, can right, i do one right? more thing
1: before we get to daenerys oh, of course um, of just course. A yeah. shout out for my least favorite game of thrones character of all time you Greyjoy, who uh his battle scene with Jamie was fine, but just the fact that he went out, uh, like trumpeting his own legacy as the guy who killed Jamie Lannister, was hilarious and so on. Oh. So if, if, I'm glad to get rid of him, but I was also glad he got one last moment for me to appreciate him.
0: I got a um, a gift request, uh, which is someone saying that I should mash up gray Greyjoy going, I'm the man who killed Jamie Lannister, with Don Draper saying, I don't think about you at all. <laughs> <laughs>
1: You mean my favorite Mad Men quote? It's such a good Mad Men quote. All right. That's really good. <laughs> um, alright,
0: so Daenerys Targaryen. Um, yes. Katie, how are, what are you feeling around this? Did you feel prepared? Uh, do you feel shocked, dismayed, disinterested? How are you feeling about this big sort of cultural event, the
1: turn of Daenerys Targaryen? So many feelings. Like I really have got, I feel like in the time, in the hour after the episode aired, while I was like working with you and reading Twitter, like I went back and forth on this because I do agree that her decision to roast a bunch of very obviously innocent people and kind of like methodically go through the streets of king's landing to kill people doesn't really track for me especially because after i rewatched that scene of her on the dragon you look at her and it looks for all the world like she is going to go torch the red keep with cersei in it and kill her which would have been overkill but would have made sense like i totally can see the character doing that it's like a good tactical move like it would have been kind of satisfying revenge for her and then when she decides to turn instead to the streets i just can't i still can't put myself there. And the fact that we don't see shots of her doing this, I think makes it even more difficult. But I also think this is where, her story had to go. We follow her, like, really single-minded quest for revenge. Like, we've seen, as you've been pointing out, like, we've seen her make bad decisions and problematic decisions all along the way. We know that she has a temper, and we know that she can be, you know, so single-minded for the throne that she, you know, gets in her own way. Um, And I think we had to really suffer from her arriving in King's Landing. I don't think it could have been a clean victory. So I get why they had to get us there. Um, I just wish they had done it in a more logical way.
0: Yeah, I, I agree with that. I think, I think time is once again, uh, an issue here. And also, yeah, this idea of placing a premium on shock. I don't know. I, I just feel like going back through all the quotes in the books that, you know, previewed this madness and Daenerys, I think it's really clear that should George ever publish another book, George R. R. Martin, this will feel more earned on the page than it does on the screen. Yeah. And I don't even know if like, I don't think Amelia Clark knew that this is where her character was heading. Uh, And so I don't think that Amelia Clark was given the opportunity to lace some of this into her earlier performance, you know? And
1: some of this being like a penchant for madness or vengeance or somewhere along that? It's not, it's not like, you know, there's plenty of instances in the show where
0: daenerys is like i'll take what is mine with fire and blood like you mm-hmm. know that these are things that she said and so people you know last night and and monday morning were like oh you dummy was there the whole time how could you not see it i mean that's like that's not very useful to sort of bludgeon people with that but uh, you know they're not wrong that that i think anyone rewatching watching this show will be able to see the clues from the get-go Mm-hmm. from from the way she watched her brother die even you know what i mean there's just like
1: kind of dispassionate about yeah, it. yeah yeah
0: but this um paranoia in her um mm-hmm. and i and i hesitate to call that th- at that because like a lot of this is centered on like emotions and female emotions and is a woman too emotional to rule and stuff like that like it's all sort of cooked together in a messy messy sure. pot but and also like,
1: people were scheming against her she wasn't wrong she wasn't wrong, but, but
0: in the books, she's more paranoid as Ares, uh, her father was very paranoid. And in this episode, she wasn't wrong, but when she was like, um, she's like Tyrion and John were sticking by her, right? Mm-hmm. And Varys is plotting against her and Varys tried to get them to plot against her and they were like, no, we're with her. And Sansa doesn't have her best interest at heart but it's not That's plotting against her. Right. And so like, you know, if she had believed them, which like, maybe she has no cause to, but if she had believed them, then maybe all of this wouldn't have happened. But she was like, you know, it's, it's a great scene. And I mean, like Clark plays it so well that Tyrion comes in and she, you know, she's like, someone's betrayed me, Jon Snow, you, Varys. Okay. Because of what a sense said, you know, like it's just, it's enemies everywhere. Enemies yeah. all around her. Like all of her friends are dead. Jorah's dead. Missandei's dead. Uh, her dragons or two of her dragons are dead you know what i mean like she has no one and this is like this is part of something the show has done to isolate her um and i understand but it just feels so fast you know it feels so fast so and then and then like let's get into the gender question of it like like what um what does George R. R. Martin plotting this out, you know, in the early nineties, long before we litigated like Clinton versus Trump in the, in the discourse or whatever. What does George R. R. Martin owe? What do Weiss and Benioff owe our modern conversation about, especially in America, about women in power and emotions and all of that, uh, when they're telling this story?
1: Oh, God. It's such... It, so, it, it's a complicated question in part to the credit of the show that there has been a lot of women in power on this show. Like, we've had Cersei, we've had Daenerys, we have Sansa, we have Arya. We had Margaery in earlier seasons and Elena Like, there's been a lot of different versions of it. And I think we've talked about how, as the series has gone on, it's gotten kind of boiled down to Cersei's crazy and bad. Daenerys is crazy and was good, but is now bad. Like, Sansa, you know, she thinks her rapist last week. It gets complicated there. Um And I think it's... I I feel like it's going to end in a complex way. Maybe this has been giving the show too much credit. I don't think, and you know, I'm speculating having, you know, basically very little information about what's coming. Um, Like, I don't think it's going to be as easy as Jon Snow takes the throne as the just and good leader. Like what Varys was trying to do. I think the, I think the show is more complicated than that. And I think they're too aware that having the, the man replace the crazy woman is, is toxic. And also like not the interesting result of these stero- stories you've seen build up. Do you, do you yeah. not have the same faith? No, I agree with you.
0: I think, I think to have John just take the throne instead would be a very disappointing ending. Well,
1: he doesn't want it. Like, it would be out of character for him to do it. Well, there's this
0: interesting conversation. I'm curious what you think about it, about both this story and to a certain extent, and I, I've written about it a little bit, but not extensively. And also, um, captain america and the marvel movies this idea of like the best person to lead is someone who doesn't want to lead who's mm-hmm. like a reluctant leader a reluctant hero that's your john snows and your steve Rogers's. um like what does that teach us watching about political ambition and is that the correct thing to teach us about it? like is it wrong to want to be president of the united states and, and it is like was Trump rewarded? Sorry to bring up Trump. I don't like talking about it that much, (laughs) but like, was Trump rewarded for treating it like, treating the presidency like a joke and something like the, the main line around Trump when he was running was like, oh, he doesn't really want it. He's just doing this to like advance his, like, you know, his business and he doesn't actually want to be president. Sure. And then Hillary's biggest, one of Hillary's biggest sins is that she actually wanted to be president. And so this question of like, do we immediately see anyone who wants the presidency, who wants the throne, who wants to rule, to lead as inherently flawed or evil or grasping or ambitious? And is that like amplified to a million degree when that person's a woman?
1: Yeah. I mean, I think if you were to ask maybe the show creators, they would say that's what the show is about is that pursuit of the throne is inherently toxic. And that for like, it has destroyed people, men and women, the entire time we've been watching the show, it destroys Stannis and Renly and, Cersei and everyone else. Um, and Daenerys is kind of the most like obvious example of that in the front. And the fact that it is now a man who doesn't want it, who's like kind of there to pick up the pieces. But I wonder about Sansa, like Sansa didn't really uh, like, aspire to power, but she's kind of learned to want it. Like, do you feel like if it ends with maybe the, the Gollum, comparison that you laid out in a post last week about how you know pursuit of the throne is like pursuit of the ring and it destroys everybody if it ends like that and daenerys is i think it now seems inevitable that she will be somehow destroyed or you know she's not going to get to take power the way she wanted to um but if sansa has power in the north and a, a different kind of power like is will that kind of counterbalance what feels like a gendered read of this
0: it's challenging to me my my sansa feelings are so complicated by the fact that she is like very much a Weiss and Benioff creation.
1: Yeah, because and in the book, she's just
0: not nearly as big a figure. She's more of a Marjorie figure. And I really yeah. like that depiction of Marjorie as like a, a person who uses power differently. Mm-hmm. And instead, they've made Sansa a, a like little finger Cersei hybrid with, with some like rigid morality of the North in her. You know yeah. what I mean? And so, um, but, but what bothers, I think, and it really hit me in this episode, what bothers me about Sansa is she's a, she's a Weiss and Benioff creation in, in the way that they've crafted her character. And she's always right. Uh huh. Uh-huh. That bothers me. I bothers me that they have like a sort of an avatar in this show who is always right. Cause she's right about Daenerys now. You know what I mean? Yeah. And like, but is she because like something that they said in the besi- behind the scenes a lot is like, if, Cersei hadn't done this, and Sansa hadn't done this, and Jon hadn't done this, and Tyrion hadn't done this. This would not have happened to Daenerys. And sure. like, you know, there's there's ways in which I agree with. Like, if Sansa had been more like, "Let's work together with Daenerys," would we be here? And like, mm-hmm. what what frustrates me is then we've got these three women in positions of power. So it's like the shot the shot of Daenerys snapping as she hears the bells, which is still mm-hmm. like I. I don't know why this episode's called The Bells, but when she hears the bells and she snaps and she gives that great face, it is immediately reflected in Cersei's face looking out of the Red Keep. So, like, yeah. they're trying to draw this strong parallel between these two women and these emotions and the devastation of their power and stuff like that. And then when you add Sansa to the mix, and Sansa, who, where, which is where Daenerys is pl- placing a lot of blame. Yeah on everything that's happening, she's like, it's all because Sansa's been, your sister's been maneuvering against me. Then it's like these three women sort of like sniping at each other and then you've got poor hapless John who just doesn't you know, just wants everyone to get along.
1: That's, that's, and, that's a, and it's uh, three women making emotional decisions. Like I'm not so yeah. sure Sansa is. Like she seems pretty level headed, being like the North has always been independent. Like we don't want to bend the knee. This is like there's like, very logical reasons to be suspicious here. But I think that the power of Daenerys's arc would be a lot greater and would feel a lot less fraught if it had been her. Burning King's Landing, but having, like, feeling like it was the right thing to do tactically, or feeling like there was something other than rage driving her. Like, the idea of someone just snapping, and especially a woman in power just snapping, that's where it gets really complicated. And there are a lot of other ways you could have gotten to this point where she had done something horrible, um, but it was somehow in the service of what she thought was leadership.
0: And I think that there are, um, examples of this in the show. Like, I would argue if you watch Blackwater, Tyrion is, uh, the season two episode Blackwater. Tyrion Lannister is defending the city. But he uses a weapon of mass destruction, which is wildfire on the boats, uh, in the Blackwater Bay. Now, granted, there are no women and children on those boats as far as we know. You know what I mean? And that seems Mm -hmm. to be sort of the, the line crossing, uh, incident. But like, he used fire, this sort of like weapon of mass destruction sort of thing to do what he thought was right. Similarly, you've got Stannis doing this like crazy line crossing thing he does by burning his daughter because he believes it's right. The, it's the only way he's going to win. And he believes in his heart of hearts that he, is the person that should run the kingdom and it is like it's a somewhat emotional performance but it's it's also an emotion less it's like i need to shut my emotions off in order to do what i think i believe is right he was wrong but it's what he thought he needed to do yeah for for daenerys to just have this like emotional flip that is also connected in the script to Jon snow's like romantic and sexual rejection of her is is tough it's a tough like it's a tough thing to to watch for a lot of women especially women who have built dinners up as this like you know figure of survival uh and survival uh, like after sexual assault or being treated as chattel or something like that you know like raise her up as this symbol of something for for women for a lot of people watching the show and then just sort of unravel that so quickly is is really tough
1: yeah and i think it is the it is a tribute to the show that they were never going to have daenerys be that easy and i don't think they ever have like i don't think she's always been she's ever been like a uncomplicated um symbol of rising above oppression maybe even in the way that Jon snow is where he you know was the bastard of winterfell who right. becomes a king like that's a lot less complicated arc and I, and I appreciate that they want daenerys to be complicated in that way but maybe like I think her hero complex and her idea of being a savior has been has been brought up for time and time again in the show but i feel like it's been really absent this season and i think that might have helped get us there too like the idea that she is powerful and right and like has a good plan but also has this like you know idea that she, everything is entitled to her um that is going to lead her astray yeah
0: oh it's so complicated it's very complicated we'll see how it all i mean like As of right now, right, Daenerys has won, uh, is the queen of the ashes. (laughs) But do
1: you think that that, do you think that it's right that like her victory had to be Pyrrhic this way? Like it couldn't have gone successfully based on what the themes of the show are about like whether or not vengeance is the right thing.
0: Well, I think this, the, the, I mean, that's the thing is like Daenerys's pursuit of the throne is so odd and, um, because it is, it ha, it is rooted in vengeance, the same way that Ober and Martell's fall was rooted in vengeance, the same way that Sandor's fall is rooted in vengeance, right? It's like, her- this was taken from her family and she wants it back. Mm-hmm. But while it's easy to sympathize with what Daenerys was doing in Essos in terms of like freeing slaves and like doing, doing good with her dragons, uh, in theory, uh, in, if not in practice, um, it's a hard to sympathize with her once she gets to Westeros. Cause you're like, why do you need all seven kingdoms? Why do you need the North? Like yeah. why? Like what, what is the, like political ambition is one thing. And like, I think it's, it's great for her to want to get rid of Cersei, but like when Sansa's like, okay, can the North be independent? And she's like, hell no. And you're like, well, why, you yeah. know? And so it's not just ambition. It's like, that's not just like, I want to get rid of tyrants and liberate the world, which is like her, her, uh, campaign promise, basically, right? To mm-hmm. nurse, uh, over the world, world of tyrants. It's, it's, uh, it, it's a power grasping thing. And that is something probably we would maybe not second guess in a man that we are second guessing more in a woman, but it is hard to view her in the same way we did when she was when, in Essos and she was just this liberator, you know? Yeah. So. Yeah, I I don't know. I mean, I think, I think you're right. And I think, I think the, this idea of like, I mean, I got way too far up my own Lord of the Rings loving um, self when I wrote this piece last week um, that you helped me with on how I think the Iron Throne is basically the ring of power. But that's something that literally had not occurred to me. Like, I don't know why it had never occurred to me. And I'm sure it had occurred to someone, but it never occurred to me that the iron, that anyone seeking the Iron Throne, that the Iron Throne itself is corrupt. Mm Mm-hmm. It is forged from the blade of Aegon's enemies. He made a chair out of swords. He took the continent in the first place with fire and blood. The fact that it's just drenched in violence, like, that's what it is. It's a seat of violence and power. And it is inherently, like, corrupting and corrupt. And so I I just, I think that's kind of brilliant because the question has always been, who, who's who's gonna win the game of thrones who's gonna um end the series sitting on the iron throne what is it all gonna like you know who's going to win the throne yeah and i love this idea as where the end of it is like that's
1: the wrong question <laughs> and you've been saying that since the beginning of the season even before this the lord of the rings idea occurred to you that like the the, the the question is not who will have the throne it's like will the throne exist
0: yeah but i thought that had to do with the army of the dead so let's not give me too much credit <laughs> i was like you're focusing on the wrong fight the fight is with the
1: night king and then episode three i was like well uh." but i do think i do think there's a pretty decent chance that iron throne won't exist by the end of the next episode
0: oh yeah i mean like i've been hoping for like many years uh as have many people that it will just be a puddle there's there's a Mm. there's a fiery dragon about i think i think the iron throne will end up a puddle and we'll get to start something new that that would be my hope um but it's too late i would say it's too late for daenerys uh
1: no matter yeah i think no yeah i think this episode made it clear and you wrote you wrote a post about john kind of witnessing the wildfire breaking out and like seeing the connection of targaryen history because presumably john knows about the wildfire from the original battle um that he and the other survivors are going to have to figure out what to do with this queen who um has made a pretty horrible decision based on motivations that we maybe wish had been otherwise depicted. Katie, I'm so grateful
0: to have you here. <laughs> this, <laughs> this is fun, fun to, to go through all of this with me at the end. And you did it great.
1: Like you were you've named up Renly Baratheon. You're like, <laughs> definitely Game of Thrones. Fluid. Oh, don't remind me of when he was still on the show and he would cut to Renley and be like, hang on, is he Jon Snow or is he Rob <laughs> Stark or is he the other one?
0: we've grown so much since then oh, um <laughs> all right so we will be back next week to talk about the finale and all of our feelings about it <sighs> until then kitty rich where can people find you
1: oh man i'm tweeting and i'm editing at com and uh, i'm not on this week's Gold men podcast but normally you can find both of us on there but uh, this week it's a tony special so listen to that
0: yes or if you want to hear Katie talk about other things you can hear on the great podcast "Finding in the war room oh my god yes thank
1: you I <laughs> no 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 <laughs> <laughs> uh,
0: you can and you're at Katie Rich on Twitter right? yes um, perfect you want all of Katie's hot takes after the finale <laughs> um, you can find me on Twitter at Joe Wrote This you can find me on VanityFair you can listen to us next week I guess on Little Gold Men and we will see you for the finale <sighs>